You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. And he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Sadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life, and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by Yahweh your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king. Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? 
for he has gone down this day, and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, saying, Long live King Adonijah, but me your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants? Who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence, and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, and paid homage to the king, and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet, and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May Yahweh the God of my lord the king say so. As Yahweh has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule, and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting, and when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan the son of Abiathar the priest came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest. Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be Yahweh the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar, then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, 
For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is my show, episode 775 of it, on Monday, December 11th, 2023. That was a reading of the first chapter of the first book of Kings in the Old Testament. We have here David, advanced in age, and being asked to weigh in on the controversy regarding who is going to be king after him. This is a fascinating chapter to me. First Kings is not all about David, but there has to be a bridge, and there is a bridge in the person of David, and you have the cast of characters being set up for where the people of Israel go next. This is God's people, a people he has declared to be his people, And he has said, I will be their God. They will be my people. This is the setup for the next generation. This is the transition from David's rule to who will rule over Israel next. And while that might go without saying, it might be super obvious after a fashion, it's still worth mentioning for what we may just sail right over. As we're being told about God's people And this is to reveal the character of God himself. It's interesting that so much attention is paid to who is king. It's not like the only person who matters is whoever will be king next, but who is king over Israel matters immensely. And a quick thought on that before we get into a play-by-play on what's in this first chapter, you'll hear people in the present day or I hear people in the present day anyways, in the United States, talk about how we put too much stock in who is going to be president. And that may be true, and we don't attend enough to who our local officials are going to be, who they are and who they will be if elections are coming up. We don't pay enough attention to, say, for instance, who's running for city council, who serves on the city council, who's the mayor Who are your county commissioners? Who is the governor of your state? What are they up to? Who are your legislators in your state? What are they up to? We don't pay enough attention to all of that. But then again, it's not just that the media has this influence. That's typically how it's talked about when I hear 
that we pay too much attention to the national scene and who is going to be president, not enough attention to local and state level politics. It's the fault of the media. It's the fault of the people who have lost their attention spans and they're too lazy and they're too disinterested and they're too caught up in the pageantry. And all of that may be true, but also perhaps that's not special about us. Maybe that's actually just people. That's how people are. People gravitate to having one person who makes the decision. And every now and then you see a foray into having more distributed government, more checks and balances. But even if you do have, say, for instance, a legislative body, it's very typical for there to be one person who presides over the legislative body. Say, for instance, in the House of Representatives right now, Mike Johnson being Speaker of the House seems like no big deal if you're not paying attention to what it is that the Speaker of the House is going to do. But the Speaker of the House is going to preside over Congress. The Speaker of the House, having a certain character or having a different character, having a certain skill set or not having a skill set, makes a huge difference for how the rest of the body functions. And so also, when we're talking about the executive branch in the way that our government works, who is the chief executive, who is the president, sets the tone for even your state's governor, even the city council, even the mayor, even your county commissioners. Why? Because the president presides over them after a fashion and can intervene either to help or to hinder what it is that they might try to do at the local level. And so in the case of 2 Samuel, for instance, 1 Samuel being very concerned with Saul being made king over and against the grumbling and objections of the prophet Samuel, Samuel also being a judge, but also having the nickname kingmaker, over and against his objections, he begrudgingly made these kings because God told him to obey the voice of the people when they called out for a king in Samuel's old age. First Samuel pays a lot of attention to Saul. Second Samuel pays a lot of attention to David. First Kings, David is still in the picture, just like Saul is still in the picture. He's still a relevant factor. Even after he's dead, he's a relevant factor. David here is still a relevant factor after a fashion, but the dynamic has shifted. It starts out, this chapter, this book, now King David was old and advanced in years. How old was he? I was thinking about this in my prep for recording this podcast episode. King David couldn't have been all that old. He only reigned over Israel for 40 years. And so if this is the end of his reign, he couldn't have been that old. We'll talk about how old he was, how old it's estimated that he was soon enough. But maybe this isn't just advanced in years. It's also the mileage. It's also what you spent the last 40 years doing, if you're David. You saw a lot of war, a lot of fighting. There was a lot of running from Saul, for instance, later Absalom. These were pretty strenuous years, 40 years, plenty of stress. Even if it was good stress much of the time, 40 years compared with four years per term for a president of the United States. Just think about how much older men 
who become president look after their first four years in office compared to when they first entered office. It wears on them. Now try 40 years. I don't think it's just how old David is here. I think it's how much stress he's been under in those 40 years. But it says in verse 1 that he had some kind of a problem keeping warm. Although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. And so his circulation is not good. What do they do about that? They need to take care of David. He is still king. There's an appropriateness to honoring him, even in his old age, maybe especially in his old age. So his servants say to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. There is apparently no objection raised. David is okay with that. That's a fine plan. Sure. Verse 3, so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. Now let's just stop right there because I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions about how that conversation went down. Did they just fan out across Israel? Did they have a beauty pageant and invite all of the most beautiful women, the most beautiful young women? How did they figure out that this young woman was to be the one? And also, for that matter, why was it important? Why is it a relevant detail that she was a beautiful young woman or that she was very beautiful? Why is that relevant? Why couldn't she have been plain? Why couldn't she have been ugly? Hmm? I think I know, right? I think the answer is, for one, David is king. And so the king gets the very best. The very best of women have, for all time, for all of history, all over the world, first and foremost been evaluated based on are they beautiful or are they not beautiful? We use this word beautiful. And what do we mean by that? Some insist that it's entirely subjective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Edmund Burke would disagree with that, did disagree with that in his landmark work on aesthetics, a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful. He says, no, beauty is not just some subjective thing. When C.S. Lewis writes The Abolition of Man, the impetus is that drivel is making its way into textbooks for schoolboys, insisting that a debate about whether this or that is beautiful is just a debate about your opinion and your feelings. All you're talking about is your feelings. C.S. Lewis says that is the worst possible thing you could tell boys and young men. That's a surefire way to make them godless and vicious. But Edmund Burke says, no, beauty has certain attributes, certain qualities. Yes, there's a subjective quality to who we believe is more beautiful than who else. And if we can put it into words, that might be a challenge. But that isn't to say that it's all the same. There are qualities and characteristics that are common to what we most often refer to as beautiful. And these are not totally arbitrary, but they get to something of the essence. A beautiful woman is typically in our day, described in biological evolutionary terms. Evolution favored women who were more fit to 
reproduce, bear children, get pregnant in the first place, but bear children who would be healthy and nurse them. And so certain physical characteristics of the body, for instance, are instinctively for men in particular noticed as conducive. For instance, wide childbearing hips or wider childbearing hips, firm and ample bosoms. But then it's not just that, right? It's also general health. Does she have pretty eyes, a well-shaped nose, rosy cheeks maybe is beside the point. And yet not for no reason. When women wear makeup, they put a little bit of rouge on their cheeks. Red is a color for lipstick, not for no reason. Why? Because there is something being communicated about fertility. Long hair is appropriate and pleasing on women. Why? Because you have to have decent nutrition, a decent metabolism, good habits generally in order to grow good-looking hair. How about a nice set of teeth, a beautiful smile? Well, if you don't have good teeth, that also can speak to poor diet, poor nutrition, poor overall health, or it can speak to bad character. You have bad habits. You're undisciplined. That's not conducive for having children, raising children successfully. But then what's curious about this with regards to David's servants finding him a beautiful young woman is that it says in verse four, the young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. And in case it doesn't go without saying, knew her not is not a reference to David suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. This is not to say that David's mind was slipping and he didn't know who this woman was. You know, who are you? And every day it's like Groundhog Day. Hi, I'm David. What's your name? (laughs) No, when it says, but the king knew her not, this is referring to the same sense of knowing as it says elsewhere. And we understand because pregnancy follows shortly thereafter. What's being described is sexual intimacy. That is to say that David was not intimate with her in the sense of having relations. And yet the whole point for her being brought to the king was that she would lie in his arms to warm him. In our day, what would we do? If an elderly person we were trying to take care of had circulation problems, had a trouble with getting and staying warm, no matter how many blankets you piled on, no matter how warm the clothes, no matter how much you turned up the heat in the house, they were still cold, what would we do? We would probably get a heated blanket. They didn't have heated blankets back then. That just wasn't a thing. And so what do they do instead? They use body heat, specifically the body heat of a beautiful young woman. I mean, you wouldn't want it to be an older woman. One, because she might say, absolutely not. Two, if she's not married herself, she's probably not all that good looking, honestly. But if she is married and then it's entirely inappropriate, even if the king is not going to know her in the old-fashioned sense. It still is not appropriate. You wouldn't have this be a young man either because, again, it wouldn't be appropriate for the king to even appear as though that's the sort of thing he was into. And that 
young man, that boy, would never live it down. His life would be forever marked by this in a negative way, in a handicapping way, in a very destructive way. And so it's not some young man, some handsome young man. If this were ancient Greece, then it very well could have been. If it were ancient Rome, then yeah, odds are high. That would have been just as well or even better. But it's significant that it's a woman, that it's a young woman, and that this is a very beautiful young woman, and that the king knows her not. Because, oh, by the way, it does not go without saying that the king knew her not, which is to say that this whole getting body heat from the young woman thing means that there's going to be close physical contact of the sort that could very easily lead to intimacy. Now, you might say, Garrett, I really don't think you should be dwelling on this. You're making too much of it. Why are you talking about this? Well, I would refer you to the tagline for my podcast. I want to talk about everything all the more when we have it actually in the biblical text. And all the more because I think so many would want to avoid this. We're going to talk about this because it's in the biblical text and we should not be more proper than God. In fact, we can't be more proper than God. God saw fit for this to be an included detail. It could have been left out. It wasn't. And there must be a purpose and a reason that is good and helpful and beneficial that we would know this, that this is how it was handled. This was the solution to the problem of David's not being able to stay warm in his advanced age, that a very beautiful young woman was brought to attend to him. She was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Why do you have to mention that last detail? Because it doesn't go without saying. Not given the way in which she was going to be warming him. Now, that said, what happens next is Adonijah, the son of Hagith, because, oh, by the way, David has so many wives, and that's interesting too. He has so many wives, and yet none of them are the ones sent for and brought. And why is that? We don't know. That's a curious thing. But oh, by the way, if they had other things to attend to, if they weren't interested, if they wouldn't be willing, or if that wouldn't be comforting for David, actually, there's too much history. There's too much, I'll say, for instance, this or that one asking him about whether her son by him will be king, could be king. That's the opposite of restful in his old age. But we have Adonijah the son of Hagith, exalting himself. So this is arrogant. It's presumptuous. He doesn't have a right to go claiming this title for himself. And yet he says, I will be king. And he does a very similar thing to what Absalom before him did. He didn't learn. He prepared for himself chariots, plural, and horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. So if Absalom had a chariot and 50 men to run before him, Adonijah will do one better, have multiple chariots and horsemen besides, and 50 men to run before him. How did David respond? Well, it says, verse 6, his father never at any time had displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Which is to say that Adonijah was spoiled. He was entitled, and his dad never corrected him at any time. He never chided him. He never scolded him. He never said, ah, you probably shouldn't do that but he should have. It says 
He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom, which is to say that Adonijah's father, David, good-looking guy, he's good stock. Also, his mother, probably a good-looking woman, also a very beautiful woman, probably, if Adonijah is a very handsome man. But Adonijah, he is going to bring Joab, Abiathar, and his brothers into this arrangement, this effort to make himself king. They're going to be enlisted, and he throws something of a party. They sacrifice sheep, oxen, fattened cattle by the serpent's stone. Also, all the royal officials of Judah are invited, but not Nathan the prophet, not Benaiah, not the mighty men, not Solomon. Why? Conspicuously, they're all the people who would not be supportive of Adonijah becoming king. But interesting too, with Absalom dead, Adonijah is the oldest. And so in Adonijah's mind, and perhaps this is the sales pitch, I will be king is predicated on, I'm the oldest. So of course it'll be me. That's not what David said. And we find that out just next. Nathan gets to talking with Bathsheba. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David our Lord does not know it? Nathan has a problem with this. Nathan, the prophet, you know, the one who confronted David about the sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed, that Nathan seeks out Bathsheba and comes up with a plan to make this go the way that Nathan believes is best, which is not for Adonijah to be king. This is why Nathan was not invited to the party, because he is set against Adonijah being king. Now, what's interesting, and this could be a clue for why Adonijah was not somebody you would want to be king, there is talk here of if this is allowed to happen, you, Bathsheba, and your son Solomon will not be safe. And interestingly, after this scheming by Adonijah is defeated and Solomon is proclaimed king and the whole city is in an uproar and there's no secret now, everybody knows that Solomon is king. After that all takes place, what's the first thing that Adonijah does? He goes and he puts his hands on the horns of the altar and he says, I'm not going anywhere until I'm assured that Solomon is not going to kill me. Why? Because that's how Adonijah operates. That's how Adonijah is. And that is to say, he's the kind of person you would not want to have as king. What crime would Solomon have committed? Only the crime of people like Nathan, people like Bathsheba, knowing that David's will was that Solomon would be king. So Adonijah is not a man of high character. He's not upright. He's not virtuous. He does not have integrity. He is not the sort who should be king. And so he's not. But it's the intervention of Nathan. Nathan, the prophet, intervenes here to stop Adonijah from becoming king. And that is fascinating. Nathan's contribution to the life of Israel, the public life of the people of Israel, his contribution is not limited to telling David a story and saying, you are the man and here's the judgment for what you did to Uriah. Nathan here intervenes, actually, interestingly, despite whatever bias he might have had against Bathsheba, it's Bathsheba's son with David who should be king next. And Nathan knows that. And so he intervenes. If not for his intervention here, 
presumably Adonijah would have been king and Adonijah would have gone after Solomon and Bathsheba, for instance, for example, plus anybody else who was opposed and who he knew was opposed to his becoming king. And yet that's not the way that it went down. And so you might say, well, I don't think that's what God's spokespeople, I don't think that's what a prophet of the Lord should be engaged in. The prophet should be you know, more concerned with holiness, more concerned with a private life of piety and godliness and repentance. And that's what a prophet should be focused on. And yet, in this case, it's not repentance of sin, it's avoidance of folly. It's avoidance of a whole lot of calamity, death and destruction and evil, rather than let's just carry on and we'll call people to repentance after it gets to be a huge mess. I find that rather fascinating. I also find it fascinating that Bathsheba, getting this advice from Nathan to go and speak with the king right now, do it now, time is of the essence. Verse 15, when Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber, it says, now the king was very old, as if we might have forgotten ourselves. The king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. Is this awkward? There's no indication that it's awkward. It's just what it is. She doesn't comment on it. There's no apparent apology or embarrassment on David's part. This is just what it is. Abishag is attending to the king, and the king asks, what do you desire? And they get right to the point, and they talk about Solomon ascending to the throne, or did you know that Adonijah is doing this thing? And then Nathan, having set this all up, again, Nathan, not the direct approach guy. He doesn't just come right out and say it bluntly, like so many others do, but he sets it up, similar to how when he confronted David in the first place, let me tell you a story about two men who had sheep. They were neighbors to each other, a rich man, a poor man. What do you think about that story? Ah, yeah, that story is actually about you, by the way, now that you've rendered judgment. In this case, we have another indirect, very clever, very shrewd setup to get the kind of response from David that needs to be gotten. Bathsheba will go and speak with David first. Then Nathan will come in and independently corroborate. All the while, Nathan's behind the whole thing. Interesting that this is included also that we would understand how people are. This is how people are. You want to get a certain response? You're going to have to think about the psychology of the person who makes that decision. When you lobby them, you've got to prime them emotionally and mentally because what? If Nathan had just gone to David directly, maybe David would have been like, yeah, no, whatever. It's fine. I don't have time for this. I'm old. Adonijah is also my son. You're kidding me. You're making it up perhaps. If it's Bathsheba, David knows exactly what he told Bathsheba about Solomon becoming king. In fact, if he swore it to Bathsheba, Bathsheba is the first and best person to go and talk with David and remind him of his oath. And then Nathan can independently verify that, yes, this is a thing. This is a thing happening. Adonijah has declared himself king. Your servants need to know what to do next. Still more indirect approach, strategy, the indirect approach, like B.H. Liddell Hart would say. The next step is not to go and attack Adonijah and everybody who's aligned themselves with him. No, no. 
It's not to go and confront them, go and talk with them first. No, actually, if Adonijah is the kind who would kill Solomon and Bathsheba and anybody else who got in the way of his securing his hold on authority, the last thing you want to do is go directly to him. You want to take this to the people. And the optics are important. Solomon writing on David's own animal that everybody knows is David's animal. The people knowing about it and Adonijah only hearing about it because there's so much of an uproar, so much celebration, what they were doing in secret off to the side, scheming, everybody needs to hear, drowned out by the people celebrating that Solomon is king over Israel. And so that's exactly what happens. But this is clever and this is shrewd and this is part of what it means to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Is there any harm in being clever like this? I would say, generally speaking, no. This is being wise. This is being shrewd. This is knowing what time it is. Now, you might say, ah, but if there's no harm in it, then why does Adonijah think that his days are numbered? Why do all the guests of Adonijah tremble and rise up and each go his own way? Because they know, actually, for all the same reasons that it would have gone poorly for Solomon and Bathsheba, if Adonijah had actually been established in his throne, it'll go badly for them if it's known that they were at this banquet, if they were at this feast, this get-together, this coronation for Adonijah. And so look at the time. Uh I just remembered I've got somewhere to be. Um, Yeah, we'll see you guys later. I got to go. Adonijah, fearing for his life, is not some indication that This is untoward on the part of Solomon. In fact, Solomon's answer is very deft, very shrewd. It's not blanket amnesty. Adonijah says, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon's answer is, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. In other words, there will be no favoritism. There will be no partiality. You will be judged based on your deeds and your character will be shown in how you behave, how you act. If you behave poorly, you are not above the law. Brother, I'm not giving you a blank check to just act however you're going to act. I am not guaranteeing that you will not suffer the consequences if you act maliciously and treacherously and wickedly. It says, verse 53, so King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house, which is to say, go home, pay homage, and get out of here. This is very merciful. But the mercy does not carry with it some blank check for bad behavior in the future. There's mercy here, but as king, like Romans 13.1 says, Adonijah is supposed to be subject to King Solomon. If he is behaving treacherously, then also as Romans 13 talks about, the governing authority instituted by God, established by God, ordained and appointed by God has the responsibility to bear the sword for something, that is to say, to punish evildoers. If Adonijah will do what is evil, then he has it coming and on his own head be it. Good for Solomon, not going after him in a vengeful way, not like Adonijah would have done, but also not cutting him any slack that's special just because he's his brother, half-brother, I suppose. All of this is hugely important. And you might say, "Ah, I don't know, though. 
And it's, yeah, it seems like that's just Old Testament and we're not Israel. I don't know. No, it's hugely important because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. It's important to God that we would know these things and that we would be wise and not foolish, not ignorant, not naive, not children stumbling around in the dark, being childish, being naive. It's important to God that we would be savvy, be blameless, be be innocent, but you're not guilty just for knowing that this is how things work. In fact, you may be guilty for intentionally ignoring and avoiding that this is in the biblical text. You're to know these things so that you understand and perceive what people are up to, not so that you can be a serpent, but to be wise as a serpent, which is to say the kinds of people who resemble serpents in their character, to be wise as serpents is the other side of the coin to being harmless as a dove, which is to say you're not just not harming other people. You're also being protective of other people, like Nathan is being protective of Solomon and Bathsheba here, intervening. Nathan knows what's up. We should too. Now, just like I said we would, let's talk a little bit about how old David is thought to have been. GotQuestions.org has an entry with the title, How Old Was David When He? Fill in the blank. While the Bible does not give us a detailed timeline of David's life, it does provide enough information to know or approximate how old David was at significant moments in his life. For instance, how old was David when Samuel anointed him king? The Lord had instructed Samuel the prophet to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint Israel's next king. As the youngest boy in Jesse's family, David was regarded as irrelevant. His father did not even bother to call him to meet Samuel. But when Samuel considered Jesse's seven older sons, God rejected them all. The prophet asked if Jesse had any other sons, and then David, who was out tending sheep, was called and Samuel anointed him. As is often the case, God chose the least likely candidate for Samuel 16, 1-13. We are not told precisely how old David was at that time, but we know he was just a boy probably between 10 and 15 years of age. How about how old David was when he fought Goliath? Scripture gives us stronger clues regarding David's age when he fought Goliath. While the Philistines were at war with Saul, their giant Goliath taunted the armies of Israel daily, but none of the Hebrew soldiers had the courage to face Goliath one-on-one. At this time, David's three oldest brothers were serving on the battle lines. David was sent to them by his father to deliver provisions. When David heard the defiant words of Goliath, he was grievously offended and told King Saul he would stand up and fight against Goliath. Don't be ridiculous, was Saul's reply. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. 1 Samuel 17.33 in the New Living Translation. The term Saul used here to describe David's age is broad, and can refer to anything from an infant to an adolescent, David was most likely a teenager, probably 16 to 19 years old. The fact that David was not yet serving in the army tells us he was definitely under 20, see Numbers 1-3. Now I'll push back on that. If he was 16 to 19, and only his three oldest brothers were serving in the army, and there's a possibility with him having seven older brothers, one that his father 
had multiple wives. And so multiple of his older brothers were not that much older than he was. That's a possibility. But I don't know if it goes without saying that he was definitely under 20. If he was 19, for instance, and he had four brothers between his three oldest and himself, then it's possible that not everybody his age was serving. That's a possibility. But it's also possible that he was 16 to 19, somewhere in there. I have no problem, by the way, with David having been 16 to 19. Zero problem whatsoever. Likewise, since Scripture says that David's three oldest brothers were in the army, we know they were 20 years old or older. Okay, that's reasonable. That leaves four brothers between them and David, strengthening the notion that David was a teenager when he fought Goliath. Okay, maybe, maybe. Again, I don't have any problem with David having been a teenager. No problem whatsoever. But if he was pushing the upper end of that and the four older brothers between his three oldest and himself were also not serving in the army, then it's possible that David was also older than that. I'm just saying from a logical standpoint, there are other possibilities, I think. But let's just go with 16 to 19. He was between 10 and 15 years of age when he was anointed by Samuel, and he was somewhere between 16 and 19 when he fought Goliath. For the next question, how old was David when he became king? The Bible is forthright in revealing David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. Thus, David took the throne of Israel at about the same age that Jesus would begin his earthly ministry, Luke 3.23. And what's fascinating about this is if you're a teenager, you're like, yeah, absolutely. Mary was probably 14. Sure. Okay, great. See, I'm an adult. You know, you come across an estimate that David was 16 to 19. You're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I am definitely capable of being regarded as capable. <laughs> yeah. If you're older, the older you are, it seems to me more the bias is to want to revise up the estimate of a certain age, maybe because we didn't accomplish anything nearly so grand and spectacular when we were younger, or maybe because we have kids or we have grandkids or there are other youth that we like feeling superior to. And if they start getting big for their britches, as it is said, well, maybe we want to relate to them similar to how David's older brothers who were in the army related to him. What are you doing here? Go home. Who's watching the sheep? Get out of here. You're embarrassing us. If you're a teenager, you think 30 is plenty old. If you're 40, 50, 60 years old, your tendency is going to be to think of 30 as Oh, you whippersnapper. You don't have enough life experience. That's nonsense. That is just plain foolishness. David, being 30 when he became king, was old enough, period. He reigned 40 years. By the time he passed on or stopped reigning over Israel as king, he was still significantly younger than the two leading candidates for president right now, Joe Biden, currently serving as president, former president, Donald Trump. And so the older folk are like, oh, who's this Vivek Ramaswamy? What a young whippersnapper. What a snot-nosed brat. No, you're too young. You don't have enough life experience. You're too young to be president. Ah, constitutionally, he only has to be 35. And oh, by the way, let's not even start on how young on average those who served in the Continental Congress were. 
Some were a bit older, a bit closer to the age David was at the end of his reign. They had that life experience, but it's not normal for us to have so many octogenarians, so many career politicians who've served for more decades than I've been alive. It's not normal. It's very unusual throughout history. You say somebody at 30 is too young to be king over Israel. And I say at 70, he's regarded as too old to be king over Israel. He's got circulation problems. He still has his wits about him, but he has to have a very beautiful young woman brought to him to keep him warm because otherwise he can't seem to get warm. He can't stay warm. Not to spoil anything here, but the last question in this section is, how old was David when he died? Since we know that David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for a period of 40 years, that places him around 70 to 71 years old when he died. First Kings chapter 2, verse 10, when the end came, David died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. First Chronicles 29, 28. What's great is he passed the baton before he passed away. And I think quite a lot of older people in our day could learn a thing or two instead of trying to snipe those who are in their 30s, like David was when he first became king. Oh, I'm still young. I can still get around. I can still do all the things I ever could do. No, you can't. No, you don't. No, you aren't. Pass the baton to somebody who is younger, who's in the prime of life. You're being selfish to stubbornly cling to power and hold on to it and not pass this on to the next generation. Stop it. And I just love the detail here in gotquestions.org's write-up on this. David took the throne of Israel at about the same age that Jesus began his earthly ministry, according to Luke 3, 23. Traditionally, this was regarded as having been fully matured. You are fully a man at 30. Yet, legally, you may be technically an adult anywhere between 16 and 21 years of age, You're no longer a minor. You're no longer a child. But 30, you are fully mature. You have enough life experience, and we should be able to get a gauge from what you've done in your adulthood to this point, what sort of a man you are, whether you should be trusted with power, authority, responsibility. But again, those who are older, those who are 45, 50, 60 years old, have a temptation to snipe at those who are younger. Now, those who are younger, may have a temptation to suppose that they're inherently superior because they're younger. Okay, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but we need to look at more than just your age to determine that, and that goes both directions. Those who are older, it's not enough for you to have been established in a house, for instance. Maybe when your generation was 20 to 30, the economic conditions were agreeable. And oh, by the way, maybe Part of the reason why the economic conditions are no longer agreeable for a 20 or 30-something today to buy their car in cash, buy a home, get married, start having kids, pay off all their student loans, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe the reason for that is in part because you guys have not been such good stewards of the authority that was entrusted to you. Maybe actually that's more relevant than how much older you are, how much more life experience you have. Yeah, you've got a lot of experience and it's bad experience. Step aside, please. Pass the baton, please. You've made a mess of things, it appears, and you need to stop it. Will they stop it? No. Unfortunately or fortunately, 
depending on whether the character of the one who holds authority is good or not so good, or the generation that holds authority is good or not so good with the character thing. At a certain point, they do get very old and they do pass on. And then they have no choice, but it's better. It's far, far better if they pass the baton while they're still alive instead of living in denial, self-indulgently, clinging stubbornly and selfishly until the very last to the authority that they have. It's better if they pass the baton while they're still alive instead of leaving it to those who have served in their cabinet, their administration, the general populace, ambitious people who may be ruthless also, not just ambitious, when it's not clear the line of succession, a whole lot of funny business and a whole lot of dirty tricks will be played by very ambitious, selfish men who, yeah, sure, they may be younger, but again, don't be simplistic on either end of the spectrum here. Supposing that somebody being older is proof that they will be wise or supposing that somebody being younger is proof that they will be wise, you need to look at the character of the person. Is their character good character? Is it bad character? Do they say true things or are they a liar? Are they a manipulator? Are they a deceiver? Do they do good things or are they threatening, oppressive, malicious, bullies, murderous even? Somebody who will bully you and bluff will at a certain point if they get frustrated that the bluff gets called and they didn't get their way, they will at a certain point if they don't repent, be willing to kill to get what they want or to remove you from the equation. But again, as in 1 Kings chapter 1, it's a good thing that there are people like Nathan in the world willing to see trouble coming and intervene. It's the grace of God that we have people like Nathan. And we should be very glad when we have people like Nathan. Next up, though, let's, while we're at Got Questions anyways, take a look at their summary of the book of 1 Kings. Because we have now transitioned from First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings is similar but distinct, we should probably know what's up. Author. The book of First Kings does not specifically name its author. The tradition is that it was written by the prophet Jeremiah. The book of First Kings was likely written between 560 and 540 BC. This book is the sequel to First and Second Samuel and begins by tracing Solomon's rise to kingship after the death of David. The story begins with a united kingdom, but ends in a nation divided into two kingdoms known as Judah and Israel. First and Second Kings are combined into one book in the Hebrew Bible. Now, that is interesting. Why did we break it out? I don't know. Brief summary. The book of First Kings starts with Solomon and ends with Elijah. The difference between the two gives you an idea as to what lies between Solomon was born after a palace scandal between David and Bathsheba. Like his father, he had a weakness for women that would bring him down. Solomon did well at first, praying for wisdom and building a temple to God that took seven years to construct, but then he spent 13 years building a palace for himself. His accumulation of many wives led him to worship their idols and away from God. After Solomon's death, Israel was ruled by a series of kings most of whom were evil and idolatrous. The nation fell further away from God, and even the preaching of Elijah could not bring them back. Among the most evil kings were Ahab and his queen Jezebel, who brought the worship of Baal to new heights in Israel. Elijah tried to turn the Israelites back to the worship of Yahweh, challenging the idolatrous priests of Baal, 
to a showdown with God on Mount Carmel. Of course, God won. This made Queen Jezebel angry, to say the least. She ordered Elijah's death, so he ran away and hid in the wilderness. Depressed and exhausted, he said, let me die. But God sent food and encouragement to the prophet and whispered to him in a quiet, gentle sound, and in the process, saved his life for further work. The temple in Jerusalem, where God's Spirit would dwell in the Holy of Holies, foreshadows believers in Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit resides from the moment of our salvation. Just as the Israelites were to forsake idolatry, so are we to put away anything that separates us from God. We are his people, the very temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 tells us, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Elijah the prophet was the forerunner of Christ and the apostles of the New Testament. God enabled Elijah to do miraculous things in order to prove that he was truly a man of God. He raised from the dead the son of the widow of Zarephath, causing her to exclaim, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of Yahweh from your mouth is the truth. In the same way, men of God who spoke his words through his power are evident in the New Testament. Not only did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but he also raised the son of the widow of Nain, Luke 7, 14-15, and Jairus' daughter, Luke 8, 52-56. The apostle Peter raised Dorcas, Acts 9, 40, and Paul raised Eutychius, Acts 29 through 12. The book of 1 Kings has many lessons for believers. We see a warning about the company we keep, and especially in regard to close associations and marriage. The kings of Israel, who like Solomon, married foreign women, exposed themselves and the people they ruled to evil. As believers in Christ, we must be very careful about whom we choose as friends. Business associates and spouses do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, 1 Corinthians 15.33. Elijah's experience in the wilderness also teaches a valuable lesson. After his incredible victory over the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, his joy turned to sorrow when he was pursued by Jezebel and fled for his life. Such mountaintop experiences are often followed by a letdown and the depression and discouragement that can follow. We have to be on guard for this type of experience in the Christian life, but our God is faithful will never leave or forsake us. The quiet, gentle sound that encouraged Elijah will encourage us. Now, a few thoughts on this summary from gotquestions.org. One being that the bookends, as it were, are Solomon and Elijah. On the one end, you have the son of David by Bathsheba. On the other end, you have this prophet who is a fugitive from wicked kings or a wicked king and his wicked queen. What happens in between is you have a series of not-so-good kings. You have some that are pretty good, some that are pretty decent, better than others, but you have some that are absolutely corrupt and they're totally evil. And not for no reason is this given to us because it's not lost on God. And that's an important thing to remember. If you live under corrupt rulers, you should remember that God is not corrupt and God has not forgotten and that God is still good. Just because people decide to be wicked and do evil things and be oppressive and be dishonest and be cruel and malicious and idolatrous and treacherous 
that doesn't mean that God's character has changed even a little bit. But then our lot in life does change dramatically. Our experience of life and what it is that we're called to, how we serve a function in our families, in our communities, in our nation, looks very different if times are good, we have an abundance of everything that we need, there's justice, there's fairness, the truth is told and can be told without fear of reprisals, and on the other hand, when times are bad, because the people are bad, the people making the decisions and the people who follow, because that's always what it takes, the people who will follow the lead and the direction of wicked men and wicked women, whether they're apathetic or they are all in and they enjoy it as much as the wicked ruler does, that it's a free-for-all. You don't get a Jezebel without lots of people being willing to go along with it or actively encouraging it. And yet, again, whether a prophet of God will be honored or pursued to take his life from him because he has offended the powers that be, God is still God. God is still the God over the affairs of men, ruling and reigning over the affairs of men. And that's important for us to remember because otherwise we'll get discouraged, we'll be confused, we'll get all swept up in the corruption, and we don't want to be swept up in the corruption. We want to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. At this juncture, I want to talk about our most recent Ecclesia Forum on the 10th, so night before last, Here in Greeley, we met at Summit View Community Church just across town, and we discussed the question or a series of questions related to, should we have faith in our institutions? What happens when there's a loss of faith in our institutions? How much faith should we have in our institutions? Why should we have any faith in our institutions? And it was a really good discussion, but there was one little problem And that was that I typed up a page of notes and I didn't get to talk through very much of those notes. But then that wasn't a problem because we were having good conversation and I didn't want my outline and my notes to get in the way of our good conversation. Facilitated very deftly, very skillfully by Isaiah Arakaios. And so I saved my notes, but here they are, particularly given that this is the Christmas season but it doesn't have to be the Christmas season for these to be pertinent notes. God is the same all year round and forever, all the years stretching back, certainly all the years that we will live in our lifetime and all the years to come. Consider, if you will, with me, Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one, it says in Matthew's gospel, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, what's interesting about this, one of the interesting things about this, actually, there are several, but I'll key in on a couple for the purposes of this discussion. Herod was declared king of the Jews. That was literally his title per the Roman Senate in approximately 40 B.C. This is why Herod was so disturbed by what the wise men were saying. For them to say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
that strongly implies that Herod is being replaced. That's what he hears. That's how he takes it. That's how the people around him who have a vested interest in his administration take it. But then he plays coy. He pretends to be as excited as anybody could be to go and honor this baby boy who's been born king of the Jews. Oh, please come on back through when you have found the baby and let me know so that I too can go and worship this king. And it's a lie. It's a lie. He has no intentions of doing that. He's disingenuous. He wants to do the exact opposite of worshiping Jesus. He wants to go and murder Jesus. Whether he puts any stock in the prophecy is beside the point because people do put stock in the prophecy. That's the danger as far as Herod is concerned. He's a godless man. He's only concerned about this from a political standpoint. What are the optics? How is that going to affect my polling numbers? If there's a baby boy who's been born king of the Jews, or that's how people start to talk, if word gets around. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here we see the Magi, the wise men from the east, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because it's a trap for all the reasons that they had come all this way to honor Jesus. They also, once they realized what Herod's intentions were, because they were warned in a dream sent to them by God that Herod intended to kill this baby boy for all the same reasons that they had come all this way to honor Jesus, they weren't going to go back to Herod and tell him, oh, he's over here, of course. But then the very next verse, Matthew 2, 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So this is to say that God knew, God's holy angels knew that Herod was about to do an evil thing. And rather than removing Herod from his position of authority or having Joseph submit to Herod's wishes, like, hey, here you go. I'm supposed to be subject to the governing authority. That means I've got to hand over this baby boy to you. It must be God's will. No, rather than anything like that, quite the opposite happened. Herod continues to be in a position of authority, but an angel warns Joseph, you need to get out of here and you need to get this woman and this baby to safety. Run. I will tell you when it's safe to come back. I will tell you when the coast is clear, but right now you need to run. Curious, right? Enigmatic. A little bit of a riddle. God has every capability of removing Herod, and he doesn't. Not yet. Not at this juncture. We might think, well, that seems like the easiest option, but then what is God communicating by leaving Herod in place and causing Herod's schemes and plans to fail with regards to the incarnate Son of God? God's proving that you, little king, have no authority compared to God's authority. The only authority you have was given to you is what Jesus says when he's on trial. You would have no authority over me except that it was given to you. And that's true from several 
different standpoints. From one standpoint, it's true because the Roman Senate or the Roman emperor has given this authority to Pontius Pilate or to Herod. But it's also true from the standpoint of you only have this authority. The Roman Senate and the Roman emperor only have authority to give to you because God himself has given you authority. And now what do you do with it? And we could say on the one hand, oh man, it just seems like God should take the capacity to do evil away from rulers and authorities before they do evil things with their authority. When God knows that they're going to do evil things, he should just take their authority away. And I say, yes, I can understand. But on the other hand, how far do you go with that? Yes, that would be just, but it would also be just if God just removed our capacity to do anything that we shouldn't do before we do it. And that's not the way it works for us as people under authority. So why would it be the way that it works? Should we really wish for that with those who have authority? Or rather, should we pray that they would do what is right? They would do justice. They would love mercy. They would walk humbly with our God in any event. Matthew 2.16 says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, here's a question. Having put aside for a moment whether it makes sense that God allows Herod to do this thing, you know, God gives a certain measure of authority and does not immediately withdraw it as soon as Herod starts going down this road. Herod is able to go down this road and do the evil, heinous thing of murdering all these baby boys. It makes sense that God is merciful and also that God is demonstrating his character, his sovereignty, his power. And also, if we're consistent, we do not want this state of affairs where God would remove us before we ever did a bad thing. What we want to pray for is restoration. Lord, Forgive me for my sins. Don't count them against me. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's what we want to pray for ourselves. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, even if our neighbor has authority, we pray for that as well for them. And then at a certain point, maybe their number is up. If they refuse that, if they will not repent, they will not confess, then at a certain point in due time, yes, they are removed. But in this case with Herod, he's not removed before ordering the deaths of all of these baby boys to and under. And here's a question. As it pertains to being under authority, if you were a soldier given these orders and you participated, you went and you did the thing and you killed infant boys in Bethlehem, would you be innocent? Would you be able to say when questioned, "Uh, I was just following orders. I mean, if I wouldn't have done it, somebody else would have done it. I mean, it's really not my fault. Would you be able to say that? Or would it be more proper to say the greater share of guilt belongs to Herod, but you're still guilty if you lifted your hand, your arm, your sword to murder baby boys? We know what God thinks of this just because God doesn't intervene in every situation and case directly. That does not mean 
that God's just so okay with this. I know. But what's interesting too, though, is for every person who will talk about how God has this responsibility to remove figures like Herod, you will have in our day Christians who mistakenly suppose that the Christian's human responsibility is to be subject uncritically to the governing authorities, blindly trust governing authorities, even if they do what is evil, even if what they're saying isn't true. You just go along with it. Don't contradict it. Don't question it. Don't disagree. Don't disobey ever. And that's a curious thing because what I see throughout the biblical text is both and. Sometimes God directly intervenes and removes, counters, neutralizes some petty king, some wannabe, some usurper who wants power and authority that really is not rightfully theirs. They want to do a thing with their power and authority that they have no business doing. In fact, it's evil and corrupt. And here comes the judgment. You see that, but you also see, I would say, as much or more God intervening from the standpoint of calling and equipping and commanding his representatives, as in the man of God, the people of God. We see far more of the business like Joseph being warned in a dream by an angel to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt and only come back when the coast is clear. We see much more of that sort of a thing. Or going back to 1 Kings chapter 1, we see much more of business like Nathan going and talking with Bathsheba. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David, our Lord, does not know it? I'll tell you what we need to do. For some, and actually for far too many in our day to be uncritically obedient, I think demonstrates, even when they are clergy, even when they are very highly placed in denominations and nonprofit Christian education, Christian publication, magazines, newspapers, book publishers, they've been far more influenced by our public education system being an obedience factory than they have been by the biblical text. And now that they're in positions of authority, they uncritically, because they themselves are the blind leading the blind, tell their followers that Romans 13 means you cut a blank check to those with governing authority. If we had a Herod in our day willing to go and murder all the baby boys to and under to secure his power, to ward off a threat to his power, to kill all the baby boys in a certain region or even in the whole country, if we had a ruler like that, actually it wouldn't be so different from having Democrats who make the overturning of Roe v. Wade into a grievance issue as they seek re-election. What is it that the Democrats are campaigning for? They're campaigning for the murder of innocent children. And yet you'll still have Christians saying that the thing that scares them most is not the murder of innocent baby boys, but Trump, flyover American conservative Christians. That's what scares them most. And they'll turn right around and they'll say that Romans 13 insists that you be subject to every governing authority. And that means, therefore, you just do whatever they tell you to do. You don't do whatever they tell you not to do. You'll know that you have a good testimony. You'll know that you're a good Christian. 
if they're only ever pleased with you. You know, what's curious is if God sent an angel and a dream to both the Magi and the Joseph, warning them about Herod, God knew Herod's character. And God also, therefore, was not only okay with not doing, not complying with what the local authority over Judea was ordering. As a matter of fact, God wanted the opposite of what Herod was ordering to actually be what would happen with regards to Jesus specifically. Or think back to Moses being sent to Pharaoh. God says, I will harden his heart. He will not listen to you, but go and say to him, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Thus says Yahweh. Now, that's a very curious thing. It's almost as though sometimes God raises up and allows prosperity to highlight, emphasize, draw the attention of the nations to a ruler and an authority who is wicked and stubborn and self-willed so that God can send his own representative in humility, say, for instance, being born in Bethlehem. There was no room in the inn, so they stayed in the manger. Say, for instance, calling a fugitive in the wilderness as he's tending flocks, a fugitive who had murdered an Egyptian because he saw him abusing a fellow Israelite, a fellow Hebrew slave. God says to that man, go to Pharaoh. He's a fugitive. It doesn't matter. He has a stuttering problem. It doesn't matter. But Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the land. He owns everybody and everything with the exception of the priests of these Egyptian deities. Don't you understand? I'm not just talking to any ruler. I'm talking to the ruler who owns all the land, all the livestock, and all the people in Egypt. He is arguably the most powerful, wealthiest man in the whole world. And you want me to go and tell him what? And you're going to harden his heart? Why? Why does God do it? God does it to make an example out of him. And I think God does a very similar thing with regards to Herod. God is going to make an example out of Herod. You will see what Herod's character is like as he goes after these baby boys trying to kill the Christ and failing, succeeding in killing other baby boys. And that's tragic and that's evil. But the sin is on Herod and on the men who followed Herod's orders, which were evil and corrupt. The sin is not on God. And oh, by the way, lest we forget ourselves, in our day, you have plenty who think that if they're given an order, that's all they need to know. And it's because they've received obedience training to be conformed to the pattern of this world, to pursue a godless progressive agenda. If they mix it in with their Christianity, that does not mean that this is what God has called us to, that this is what Romans 13 means. Romans 13.1, an interesting thing about what Paul writes in that first verse that is so often quoted and also so seldom understood or handled correctly in our day. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This word instituted in the Greek is tasso. It's primarily in military sense, then generally to draw up in order, 
arrange in place, assign a point and order. God is a God of order, after all. So, of course, God institutes. It occurs eight times in the New Testament. Elsewhere, it is translated as directed, set, appointed, devoted. In this case, in the ESV, it's translated instituted. So the authorities that exist have been instituted by God or they've been established. They've been assigned their place. That doesn't mean that everything that they do, everything that they say is good and true, but it is to say that God is a God of order. And to the extent that they're not telling you to do an evil thing or they're not forcing you to tell lies to prop up the violence that they do, because God is a God of order, be subject, be honorable, but then for all the same reasons that God having instituted them is the reason why you're subject to these human authorities. If they start telling you their orders are for you to disobey God, that's when you know you can't do both. You can't obey God and them. And if your whole reason for obeying them is because God told you to, well, then they've just dissolved the reason for you to obey them, to say, here, I want you to disobey God so that I could be your new God. As we were talking in our Ecclesia Forum on Sunday about institutions, do we have faith in our institutions? How much do we have? Should we have the faith that we do? Should we have more faith? Why? What does that mean? It occurred to me that we need to differentiate having faith in the institution that is there is an office, our government operates like this, Authority, generally speaking, is good. It's good for us to have mayors, city council, county commissioners, governors, legislators, judges, a president. It's good for us to have these various offices filled by men. That's from God. But also, it's good for us to differentiate the goodness of that from how an individual in one of those positions may relate, may carry out their duties or neglect their duties or abuse their authority, it's very important that in order for us to understand why God warns Joseph to flee and therefore to actually thwart the intentions of Herod, it's important that we recognize that God can establish offices, even the general concept of there being an authority. God can make it so a particular man is in a position of authority. He raises up kings and he also brings them low, which is to say he doesn't raise them up with a blank check. At a certain point, if they behave corruptly, if they are wicked, if they are godless, if they are arrogant, God reserves every option to remove them. And one of the instruments God uses to remove wicked men from positions of authority is other men. And you have to be careful with that ladder business that you understand it rightly, but you can't deny it wholesale, which is what some people want to do. They want to deny it wholesale and say, oh, no, 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 no. But wait a second. What about Nathan going to Bathsheba and then the two of them, first Bathsheba, then Nathan will come in after, going to David to thwart Adonijah becoming king? What about that? Was Nathan in the wrong if Adonijah had very bad character? Was Nathan doing a bad thing, a wicked, disobedient, ungodly thing to thwart the schemes of ambitious Adonijah? 
I don't believe for a second that he was doing the wrong thing. But that doesn't mean every similar sort of a move, generally speaking, every similar maneuver we might pull off or attempt is fair game. But see, that's where we have to be reading the whole counsel of God, studying to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's where we have to actually study the whole of the Bible and also look at history and also pay attention to what time it is. And if somebody is saying that they're an anarchist and the ideal would be to just remove all men from positions of authority, nobody should have any authority, then you say that's lawlessness and that is not from God because it is God who institutes authorities. No authority exists except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. But on the flip side, if somebody says, well, then we should just do whatever governing authorities tell us to do without reservation, without hesitation, no critical thinking to be done here. All you need to do is ask how high when you're told to jump. Then I say, you clearly haven't read example after example after example where God himself guides and directs his representative, his prophet, his servant, his priest to go and counter, contradict, question, criticize, condemn, or call to repentance some human authority. And both things can be true at the same time. One, that God has allowed this or that man to be in a position of authority, and also that God has allowed and enabled and facilitated and even commanded this or that man who is not in a position of authority to come and rebuke publicly this man who God has put in a position of authority. And maybe all of the above is common grace. Isn't it also lawless? Isn't it lawless if you're an anarchist and you say we should have nobody in a position of authority over anybody? That's inherently ungodly. Why? Because, you know, we didn't have kings and governors and emperors in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, but they didn't wear clothes either. And we do that. It's okay to wear clothes. In fact, if you read on a little bit, God himself gave them a set of clothes. And so it's okay to wear clothes. And it's okay to have kings and governors. In fact, Samuel is the one who gets all upset when the people demand a king in the first place, like the nations around them. And God says, no, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. You let me be offended for me. You obey the voice of the people. Just warn them about all of the costs. They're only thinking in benefits. Warn them of the costs, but obey the voice of the people here. And so the anarchists are wrong. The anarchists are wrong to say we should have nobody in a position of authority. That's lawlessness, but it's also lawlessness after a fashion. If you believe that the authority over your soul is total when somebody legitimately has a position of authority, their authority is not being legitimately wielded if they start relating to you like they're God and you are going to worship them. And that straight up happens. Literally that happens explicitly in scripture and the right response is not to bow down and worship. Well, I'm supposed to give honor to all to whom honor is due. That's not what it means. Every time the music plays, bow down and worship the golden statue of the king. Well, you know, I'm just trying to be biblical here. I'm trying to be subject to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. No, no, you're not. You can't be serious. Either A, you are simple-minded. B, you're pulling our leg. Or C, you know better 
and you're a coward and you're making excuses. You're trying to sanctify what is inexcusable. Our trust in institutions, our faith in institutions cannot be sustained unless it is predicated on our having faith in the one who institutes positions of authority, period, full stop. You cannot sustain faith in institutions when men forgetting God, hating what God says is good and true, behave very corruptly. That's what undermines faith in institutions, but then that's also a not careful thing. That's a sign, that's an indication that we thought the person in the office was the institution, like when Anthony Fauci starts talking about himself as science personified. You're anti-science. Well, how do you know? Because you disagree with me. Yeah, but I don't think you're the science. How dare you? You know, this is a threat to our democracy, you hear the Democrats saying, anytime you question their ethics. No, I'm not threatening democracy. I'm just saying, I don't think this is very democratic. Oh, we are democracy. I am the state, like old King Louis once said. L'état, c'est moi. I am the state. No, Louis Fourteenth, you are not the state. But insofar as you have the consent of the governed, insofar as they either apathetically or enthusiastically support you when you do corrupt things, then yes, the whole people is under judgment if you behave wickedly. And it's not just you who will suffer. It will be all of the people who approved of the wicked things and they facilitated those wicked things. Notice another thing about Nathan seeking Bathsheba out and then going to David to make sure that Adonijah does not become king. David is not attentive to this like he should be. Whether that's because he's old and he has lost his wits a bit or because he's distracted and indifferent and puts a little bit of the wrong type of stock in the sovereignty of God to the point of neglecting his responsibilities. Not that anybody would ever do that, but lots of people do that, actually. Oh, just trust God. Trust God and do what you're supposed to do. How about that, right? Trust that God put you here right now for a reason, and you're supposed to act like it instead of just sitting on your thumbs and making excuses for your laziness and your indifference and your cowardice. Nathan is active in his trust in the providence of God, that God has already provided a king in Solomon, and that Adonijah is not who is supposed to be king next. Nathan doesn't drop to his knees and then pray that David will just realize on his own. No, he just gets to work. Hey, Bathsheba, can I talk to you for a minute? We need to talk with David. Why? What's up? Adonijah has maneuvered himself into being declared king, and these several men, these royal officials of Judah, the king's sons, they're all on board. We need to act fast if he is not going to be king. Oh, dear. Uh, What should we do? I want you to go and speak with David and ask him if he knows this thing. Does he know that Adonijah has just seized the throne or is in the process of seizing the throne right now? While you're talking to him and reminding him of the oath that he swore that Solomon would be king after him, I will come in and confirm the report. That's how we're going to do this. All I need you to do is say this, this, and this, and then I come in afterwards and I'll take it from there. Okay, good. You go right away. Don't waste it. Nope. Nope. We got it right now. Time is of the essence. We do not have time. You go in right now. I'll give you five minutes and then I'm coming in. 
Okay, good. Friends, this is Being Wise as Serpents, Harmless as Doves. Matthew 10, 16, and I'll leave you with this. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is part of Jesus sending out the twelve, and he warns them about human nature so that they are not naive or ignorant, and they're not caught flat-footed by what they're getting themselves into, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God being at hand in Christ. Jesus tells them that they will be persecuted. Men will seize hold of them and hand them over to authorities. This is going to happen. Don't worry. Stay calm. Those governing authorities will be opposed to what it is that you're doing, in part because they'll have pressure from people in the community to be opposed to what it is that you're doing. Stay the course. Just a heads up. This is coming. It'll be all right. We need to have that mentality, and we need to understand why it is that Jesus was calling his disciples to that mentality. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.